0: Good morning. Christ is risen. Well, the good thing about having three services on Sunday morning and having a very early service is that I can get some of the honoriness out of my system and be in much better behavior in the second (laughs) service than I was in the first one. So I'm going to try to avoid some of those early morning mistakes this time. It's good to see you. It's good to be back. It's been a couple months since I've been here, and I miss you, and at least most of you. And I hope at least some of you miss me. I don't want to presume too much. So I'm going to start in Matthew 6 in just a moment, and then we're going to read a few passages of Scripture. But there's a story about Father Anthony of the Desert, Anthony the Great, who late 3rd century, early 4th century, Christian man in Africa who becomes the founder of Christian monasticism. Essentially, he models a way of life that becomes standard for ancient and medieval and continues into modern Christianity. There's a story about Father Anthony meeting with this school of monks, and the monks ask Father Anthony in his wisdom, he's at this point an old man who's lived alone in the desert in prayer and fasting for many years, performed miracles, and he's famed for his teaching and for his wisdom and for his power in prayer. And this school of monks come to him, young monks, and they ask him, Father Anthony, what is the one virtue, the greatest virtue, that we need to master, we need to receive, so that we can draw close to the heart of God and resist temptation? And as a wise teacher often does, he says, you tell me. And so as the story goes, they talk for hours, giving their answers to his question what they think is the greatest virtue, how to draw close to the heart of God and how to resist temptation. They, fact, talk all day, and they talk all night, and they talk into the next day, offering their own responses. And finally, they've exhausted all of the possibilities, and Father Anthony answers. And he answers by directing them to this text that we're about to read, which is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Two verses, just a few lines. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, what answer is this? What is the greatest virtue? What is the virtue we must receive and master if we want to draw close to the heart of God and resist temptation? Father Anthony says, read the words of Jesus. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I I think Father Anthony is is telling them and us this, that what you need above all is moral vision. If you don't know how to see what is happening in your life and the the, lives of the people around you, if you don't really know what you're looking at, then you can never draw close to the heart of God. You can never resist temptation. That You can only love God and love neighbor if you know what it means to look at God, to see God, to recognize God, and to see your neighbor and to recognize your neighbor, to see them lovingly. Everything depends on how you see what you're looking at to use good Oklahoma grammar. <laughs> what, what am I seeing? Because all of the time, all of the time, you're making moral judgments about yourself, about the world around you, about the people you work with, about your, the people that you live with, about the people who are cutting you off in traffic, about the people that you're worshiping with. You're constantly making moral judgments. Watching TV, watching a movie, reading a book, you're seeing And the question is, are you seeing or are you failing to see? What are you seeing? And what if the light that's in me is darkness? What if when I'm seeing, I'm not really seeing? What if I don't know what I'm looking at? What if I'm not looking at what I'm looking at the way God looks at it? This is the decisive question, I think. And so I want to talk this morning about how to come to see, how to come to have the light in us be light and not darkness. The Christian life is, I think, an extended, lifelong training in seeing otherwise, in learning to look at things and to know things the way God looks at things and knows things. That's what we're training to do. And all of our worship, and all of our prayer, and all of our study, we're, we're trying to see rightly. So to get at this, I want to I look at two stories, both stories of widows One from the Gospel of Mark, one from the book of Ruth. Story of two widows and how they are seen and how they see and then how we're likely to see them. So first, Mark chapter 12. Jesus is teaching, and we'll pick up just a few words of his teaching and then the story of this widow. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, And to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say long prayers. Now, I've heard this before. I told them in the first service I was speaking at a church once in Mississippi. I finished and the pastor recognized that there was another minister in the audience. And he said to that man, would you pray for us to close the service? And the man prayed for 10 minutes as a closing prayer which is equivalent to like two hours and 45 minutes of a sermon. Like that's a long closing prayer. And what's memorable about it was not just that he prayed such a long time, but in the prayer, he started confessing sins, his own sins, which would have been, I mean, it was exciting. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you, it's, you, you want to happen, but you don't really want it to happen, right? You're glad it did after it's over, but it's incredibly awkward while it's happening. But in that list of sins was this one. God, forgive me for going into bookstores and reading books without buying them. Which maybe all of us should have that in our confession list. And then, and then, as if, I mean, it had to be some kind of elaborate prank. He said, except for that one book, God, you really use that one to bless me. So long prayers, right? Jesus says, they, these scribes, will receive greater condemnation. And then we get to the story of the widow. So he sets down opposite the treasury and watches the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. Some of you this morning, that's the word of the Lord for you. (laughs) A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now this is a story, as with most of Jesus' stories, that gets more disturbing the more you think about it. I've heard this sermon many times, almost always attached to either raising money for a building or raising money for an outreach or the pastor needs a new plane or something. <laughs> this idea that you, you need to give, it sacrificially. But this is not a story about giving. This is not, it's not a story about giving. Not in the way that we think about giving. It's an odd story. And as I said, it gets odder the more you think about it. It gets so strange. I mean, this is Jesus who's just taught about how scribes and priests devour widows' houses. What does that mean? It means that they manipulate little old women into giving to their projects. They're the TV evangelists of their day. They are leveraging these poor old women to give their final coins to their ministries. Jesus says, they are going to receive a greater condemnation. And then Jesus sees a little old widow giving her last two coins to that project. And he says, she's given more than them all. What? Why is he drawing their attention to this widow? And remember, this is just after Jesus, the previous day or so, had cleansed the temple. He drove all the money changers out. And now they're already back. And this woman is giving To the treasury of the temple. And then, and then, treasury in the temple. The next chapter tells us that the disciples, right after this story, right after Jesus draws his attention, draws their attention to this woman, they look at the temple and they say, Look at this glorious place. How wonderful it is. He wants them to see the widow, they're looking at the architecture. And Jesus says to them, Don't look at the temple. In just a few days, not one stone will be left on top of another. This is going to be destroyed. So think about what that means. That means that Jesus, who is infuriated with the scribes who are asking the widow to give, who is sickened that they're using the temple for this project, and who knows that the temple is going to be destroyed, is praising a woman for giving to it. She's being manipulated to give to a project that's corrupting the purpose of the temple, a temple that's going to be destroyed anyway, and Jesus praises her. What sense does that make? She's giving virtually nothing to a project that has no future and is unfaithful anyway. And Jesus says, imitate her. Because he sees what we don't see. What Jesus saw that day, no one saw. Not the priests, not the scribes, not the disciples. The priests and the scribes saw a little old woman who was giving what she could give to a project they thought was important, and they were flatly wrong. And the disciples saw a little old woman giving what she could give to a project that was doomed, and they were wrong. Because they were all operating in common sense. And common sense always misleads. In fact, the call to see otherwise is precisely the call not to trust our common sense when it comes to making judgments about what God is doing in the world. That we never, if we trust common sense, we will never really know what God is up to in the world, what God is up to in our lives, or the way that we're being tempted to turn from God. Because by the standards of common sense, it makes no sense for this woman to give. She's given her last. She's given her last coins, the last of her money, to a project that's doomed anyway. That does not make sense. But our God is not a God of common sense. And God is constantly trying to save us from common sense. And what strikes me about this is it's Jesus who sees her rightly. Why why does Jesus see her rightly? Because he's God, of course, but... He's also the one, we're just told this in, this in this chapter, right before the passage we read. Jesus appeals to the, the passage in Psalm 118 that says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this work of God is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected. Now think about that line. Jesus is the stone that the builders reject. But why do builders reject stones? I mean, they work with stones all the time. Why would they reject the stone? Because their, com- their years of practice, the common sense that they've honed in their skill over years of experience says, this stone is not usable. And so they reject it. That's who Jesus is. That all of our training, all of our experience, all of our expertise says, can't use this. God says, that's what I want that every everything that we bring to bear that tells us this matters, God says, fine, you think that matters? This matters to me. You call that wisdom? Well, my foolishness is wiser than your wisdom. You call that strength? Well, my weakness is more powerful than your strength. You're interested in this stone. I'm interested in These stones that you've rejected. That's who Jesus is. And because he is the stone the builders rejected and yet is chosen by God to make this marvelous work, he picks all of us. Do you know that's why you're here this morning? Because nobody else would want you but God. (laughs) Nobody else would want me but God. We're the stones the builders rejected. That's what it means to be elected. This is what God tells Israel. Why did I elect you out of all the nations of the earth? Precisely because you're the weakest Precisely because you are the least sensible choice. That's what God delights in. That's why he calls you and me, to do what is impossible. To make of us something we could never have made of ourselves and others could never make of us. To make something marvelous from stones that are rejected. That's the God we serve. That's what he's always been doing and what he always will be doing. But God is not only a God who works against common sense, who uses the stones the builders reject. God is also a God who breaks God's own rules, to quote my friend Don Vance, who's in the house today. God is a God who breaks God's own rules. Now, immediately, that makes us squirm, so let's look to the Bible, because if it's in the Bible, it can't be wrong. Right? Ruth 4, 13 to 17. And, and of course, it's me reading the Bible, so I could be wrong, but in this case, I'm not. As N.T. Wright says, (laughs) 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 right, it's, it's obvious, I could be wrong, but in this case, you know, I'm not. Ruth four thirteen to 17. I, t- I said I was going to be on better behavior. I'm, I'm, so far, I'm failing. <laughs> What's that? Oh, yeah, yeah, N.T. Wright says this about, he says, which I, I submit this humbly, acknowledging that I could be wrong, but I'm not, right? So he, he, I'm essentially quoting him when I say, I could be wrong, but in this case, I'm not. So Ruth 4, 13 to 17. This, we're going to read the end of this story, essentially. But in case you don't know or don't remember, this, the book of Ruth is a story of a woman named Naomi and her family. They are in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and a famine comes. And there's no bread in the house of bread. And so they flee. They flee to Moab. They flee outside of Israel altogether, in fact, and find food and shelter there. And her sons marry there. They marry Moabite women. And then her husband dies there in Moab, and her sons die. And she decides to return home. The famine has ended, and she decides to return home. And her two daughters, Orpah and Ruth, two daughters-in-law, have to decide if they're going with her. And Orpah stays, and Ruth comes with her. And, of course, there's that beautiful pledge that Ruth makes, where you go, I will go, Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And so Ruth returns. And on the face of it, it might not seem like much is happening. Here's a woman who went away into a foreign land, and then she's coming home with her daughter-in-law who decides to stay with her. But there's actually much more than that going on. Because in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving his last word just before he dies, his last word on how Israel is to understand the law. So the law has already been given And Deuteronomy is the account of Moses' interpretation of the law. Here's how you understand it. When you go into the land to inhabit the land and live in the land, this is how you're to live it. And one of his last words to them is from Deuteronomy 23:3. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, the people of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey out of Egypt and because they hired against you, Balaam son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you, no Moabite shall be allowed. And here comes Ruth. God is a God who breaks God's own rules. God has said, "I'm not going to allow a single." Ammonite or Moabite into the people of Israel because of their failed hospitality, their refusal to make room for you, their refuse to set a table for you, and they try to curse you. They hire a prophet to bring my judgment on you. And because of that, they're excluded. And here comes Ruth. And here's what we read in Ruth 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, "'Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day "'without next of kin,' or without a child, "'and may his name be renowned in Israel. "'He shall be to you a restorer of life "'and a nourisher of your old age. "'For your daughter-in-law who loves you, "'who is more to you than seven sons, "'your daughter-in-law, the Moabitess, "'who's forbidden from coming into God's people, "'is more to you than seven sons. "'She has borne him. "'Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom "'and became his nurse.' The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The father of David is a woman God's own law said wasn't allowed into the assembly. And not only is she allowed in, she becomes the mother of David, the mother of Jesus. Because God is a God who breaks his own rules. Because what's taking place here? What's taking place here? Think about about the Jonah story. This is what Jonah understands. This is why I've often said, Jonah knows the heart of God perhaps as well or better than any other prophet in scripture. You remember the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Go to Nineveh and tell them in 40 days I will destroy the city. And Jonah says, no, no, I'm going away. (laughs) No thanks. He runs away. Because sometimes... The sign that you're taking God seriously is that you're reluctant to obey because you understand what's being asked. And Jonah flees. And of course, you know the story. He ends up thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, vomited by the fish, up onto land, goes into the city quite reluctantly and smelling of fish and preaches about the judgment of God and the city repents. And then he goes up on a hill overlooking that city and curses them and himself and God. And this is what he says, I told you, God, this is what would happen because I know you. And I know that even though you said you would destroy these people, I know that if I came here and told them that you were going to destroy them, they would be afraid of your destruction and they would repent. And when they repented, you would forgive them because I know what you're like. And I don't want you to forgive them. Now, this is what it looks like to understand a God who's willing to break his own laws when it comes down to saving lives, and this is what we see in Jesus. I mean, we could give countless examples. Just think about Jesus and the Sabbath. He is constantly breaking the Sabbath, and when he's persecuted for it and confronted about it, what does he say? You don't understand. Sabbath was made for these people, not the other way around. The reason God breaks God's own laws is that God's laws were always for you anyway. And if what he wants to do in your life requires breaking that law, it's still inside of his purpose. That was purpose from the beginning, which is to bring you into life and that more abundantly. And we get it wrong whenever we think that people are made for the law. And we care more about keeping the standard of the law than about bringing people into life. God will break God's own laws, not because he's unreliable or capricious, but because he's faithful, and he's faithful to what he's always purposed to do. And the purpose is to bless you and not to curse you, to bring you into the fullness of life. One of the craziest and and most deeply provocative statements in all of Scripture is what Paul says about the Gentiles in Romans 9 to 11. And at the very end of that section, he says, talking about the, the olive tree, The roots of that tree are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he says, God has grafted in against nature Gentiles. God has done what is against nature to include the Gentiles in what he's doing. That's the God we serve, who does what is even against the laws he's written into things in order to bring about life. And, and yet, there's another part of the story I don't want us to miss, and I have to hurry. That's the bad part about having three services. Although, can you, if, we'll just let everybody show up for the, for the 1130 service, and we'll, we're having revival. It's broken out on every side. <laughs> but I want to talk quickly about Naomi before I move on. Because not only do we need to see Ruth rightly and see the ways in which she challenges how we understand the law of God... But Naomi is someone who's come to see herself wrongly. You remember the story? She goes away into Moab, and when she returns, she returns, and these same women say, who is this? They don't recognize her. They don't understand. Like, she's been so marked by her suffering that they, they don't recognize her. She's been defaced by her misery. And this is what she says. Call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara which means bitter. She's named herself. And I wonder how many of us have done that. We've named ourselves. And it's not just about how we see other people, how we see Ruth, it's about how we see ourselves, about what we think our own name is. And here comes Naomi back, and what she sees about herself is bitterness. But here's the hope. She at least sees Ruth rightly. And the key to you and me coming to see ourselves rightly is learning to see our neighbors rightly. If I can see Ruth rightly, then someday God through Ruth is going to bring new life to me. And when I receive life, then I'm going to hear my my true name. You you see what the women say at the end of the story? They say, Naomi, God has given you a child. You see what they're doing? They're refusing to let her name herself. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself, Naomi. We recognize what God is doing here. And through Ruth, this woman who shouldn't even be allowed in the covenant, through Ruth, God has brought life back to you and taken your own name away from you and given you the name he intends for you, not the name you feel fitted to give yourself. That's how healing comes. That's how healing comes. And for those of you here this morning, and I'm sure there are many of us, who don't know how to name yourself rightly, just let God teach you how to see the person next to you. Just learn to see them rightly, and someday through them, they will see you rightly, and they will name you rightly. And that'll be your joy. I'm almost done. I want to end with one more story. Second Kings chapter six, the story six, the story of, a story of Elisha. What's happened in this story just previously is you have these Aramean warriors bands. Who are attacking Israel repeatedly, but are constantly foiled because the prophet is giving secret intelligence to the to the Israelites. Don't go there because the Arameans are laying a trap for you. So the Arameans lay the trap. Israel never shows up, and Arameans then have a kind of military council in which they say, "We have a leak somewhere. A spy is exposing our plans." And one of them says, "It's not. It's not a leak. They have a prophet. (laughs) They're cheating." They have access to God, and that's why we're being foiled. And so the, the king says, well, go and get that prophet. And bring him to me. Go capture him. So the enemy comes to get him. And they come at night to the city of Dothan, and they surround the city. And that's where we pick up the story. When an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. So he's out for, to get the coffee for the prophet, and he sees... We're surrounded. And he runs back to the house and says, alas, master, what shall we do? And notice Elisha's response. Do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And, of course, this is an evocation of Elijah, the one who was caught up in a chariot of fire. And now those same chariots are swirling around the city in protection of this prophet. When the Arameans came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, please, with blindness. He's very polite. (laughs) Very polite. That's the key with God. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. And then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me. Now, this is a, this is a little white lie, a little um, casual manipulation. Elisha comes out of the city. He's in Dothan. He's been surrounded. He prays for them all to be blinded, politely. God gives him his request. He comes outside the city and says, hey, you, you're looking for Elisha, the prophet, right? Well, this isn't the city, but I can take you to him. I know where he is. And they, they're very polite, they follow him. I'm not sure if I had just been struck blind along with all of my companions, I would just trust the next person who came up. (laughs) But hey, Elisha had a way with people, apparently. And Elisha leads them to Samaria, the capital. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Oh, Lord, open the eyes of these men. Same prayer he prayed for his servant. Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw that they were inside Samaria. Can you imagine the fear? When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, Father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And he's so excited. He's standing on his tiptoes like a sword in one hand and a spear in the other. He is ready to slaughter these enemies. Shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And notice Elisha's response. No. Did you capture with your sword and your bow those whom you want to kill? set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and let them go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. After they ate and drank, he sent them on their way and they went to their master. And the Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. What's happening here? It's a story about seeing. And Elisha sees and therefore does not fear. When he's surrounded, his servant's afraid. The people in the city are afraid, but he's not afraid. Not because he's naive. He understands they are set against me, they can kill me. But it's he sees what they can't see. He's not blind to the threat. He just sees that greater is the one who is in us than the one who's in the world. He's not naive that this could destroy me, but even if they destroy me, there's one who raises the dead. He understands that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And that whatever you mean for evil, even if you get your will done, God will just turn that around and use it for your good and my good. I have nothing to fear. This is what it means to live rightly in the world. It doesn't mean that we don't see that there are enemies set against us. Of course we see them. But we don't fear them. Because we understand there's one who in mercy is set against them too. And whatever they do against us, he will use for their good. And our good. There is nothing to fear. And because there's nothing to fear, he can feast with his enemies instead of killing them. If you can see past your enemies to the armies of God who are set around you and them, you don't have to feel the fear they want you to feel. And you don't have to kill them in order to protect yourself. You can say, Come sit down at the table. You're at my mercy, and what I want to do is serve you. Now, if I can be this bold and this direct, what I want to say is I think right now, and I don't want to overgeneralize. I really don't. But in too many of our churches and in too many of our lives, we don't see the armies of the Lord, and we are too afraid of the armies of the enemy. (laughs) And that's at every level, whether we're talking about social issues That 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 affect us as a church, or we're talking about in our personal lives. We're talking about at sanctuary with all of the changes that are taking place, or we're talking about just personally what we're experiencing in our day to day lives, in our marriage with our children. We see the enemies, but we don't see the one who is set against our enemies as well as against us. And because we're afraid, we don't know how to sit down at table with our enemies. You know, there's that promise in Psalm 23, he will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. You know why? Because he wants you to eat with them. You know why he sets a table in the presence of your enemies? Because he wants you to serve them. He wants you to wash their feet. He wants you to bless them and not curse them. He wants you to speak life and not death. He wants you to show them that there is one who is for them, who is greater than the one who is against them. And that they they belong to the Lord too. Because Christians don't really have enemies. We have people who think they are our enemies. But we know that even our enemies belong to the God who's called us to life. And so we are never afraid. Not because we're naive. We understand bad things can happen. We are going to suffer. Many of us are going to suffer greatly. But... Past that suffering, there are the everlasting arms of God. On the other side of whatever can be done to us is the God who raises the dead and who makes all things right. There is nothing to fear. Church, there's nothing to fear. And we don't have to make any decisions at any level out of fear to protect ourselves. I don't hold my life in my hand. My life is held in the hands of someone who's greater than all that can happen who is the ancient of days, who is the omega as well as the alpha, who is going to be there at the end as well as at the beginning. I don't have to hold my own life. I don't have to make my own future. I don't have to protect myself. I don't have to protect my people. I don't have to protect the truth. I don't have to protect God. I don't have to stand up for the truth so that no one mutilates the truth. God... We'll stand up for what needs to be stood up for. All I have to do is stand with him. All I have to do is say, come sit at the table that he's prepared for you and for me. I'm almost done. You can stand. What I want you to see, two, two things really quickly. What I want you to see is when Elisha does that, when he prepares a table, the next and last line of this story is, and the Aramaeans came no more to raid. You want to talk about how God defeats God's enemies? He defeats them with the gospel. So do not walk out of here. Listen, if you do, I will hunt you down. Do not walk out of here saying that I'm being soft on sin, that I'm casually overlooking God's laws against sin. Sin is sin, Sin has consequences. Sin leads to death. God hates sin, but God's not afraid of sin. God is not afraid of sin. And the way to destroy sin is not to act on sin's terms. The devil's device is to get us to judge sin in a way that makes us worse sinners. This is what happens to the Corinthian church. There's a man who sinned. Probably a sin of taking his father's wife. And Paul says, judge this man. This is sin. If God's going to save him and you, you've got to make a judgment about this. And so they do. And then the man repents. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. No second chances, bud. You had your chance. And we've got to stand against sin because if we don't stand against sin, then our witness collapses and we are judged as unfaithful. And Paul writes to them and says, forgive the man. Don't you understand who you are? And then he says, for this is the devil's device. The devil's trick was not to get that man to fall into sin. The devil's trick was to get that community to judge that man for his sin. That's the devil's device. And again, if I can be so bold, it's not that we're all wrong about the sins that we see in other people's lives. It's that we don't recognize the devil wants us to see those sins. Because if we see them the wrong way, what happens to us is pride, is self-righteousness, is false confidence. And suddenly we think we're seeing when we're not really seeing. So the way to get rid of sin, the way to destroy the works of the devil, is to refuse to play into that trick. And to really see the people from the first. And to understand that where there is sin, God is at work. And if we invite them to the table, he will rid them of that sin. He will drive it out. Our God is a consuming fire and he will destroy all that is going to destroy us. But we have to trust God to do that. I don't have to get the sin out of your life. I don't have to convict you of your wrong. All I have to do is say, I know a God. If you're in his presence long enough, you'll come to see that's not life for you. That's not freedom. That's not joy. That's not peace. He will drive the wickedness out of you. That's not my job. That's not my work. I'm getting too worked up here, sorry. <laughs> but listen, I, I, really, I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. Of course it matters. But we need to fear the greater sin of condemnation. We need to fear the greater sin of pride and self-righteousness, as much as we fear anything else. And if we want the Arameans to stop raiding, it's not slaughter them with a sword, it's feed them at the table. Paul tells the Corinthians this at the very end of that letter. He says, we can do nothing against the truth. We can do nothing against the truth. And here's, here's what he means. He's saying to the Corinthians, I want you to accept me. You've rejected me. You've turned to other." Others, and away from the gospel I've given you. But he says, at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do that doesn't allow me to be like Jesus. Because if you accept me with open arms, then I'm Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, embracing you. And we celebrate together like a family. But if you reject me, I'm still Jesus. I'm Jesus of Gethsemane and Jesus of Golgotha. I'm Jesus of Holy Saturday. But no matter what you do to me, I can be Jesus. And that's why I don't have to fear. So no matter what happens, socially, culturally, communally, in your family, in my family, in my life or your life, no matter what happens, there's nothing that can take us away from being like Jesus. Anything happens that we can take joy in, we're Jesus of the resurrection. Anything that comes that brings suffering, we're Jesus on the cross. But either way, we're at one with him. And as long as we're at one with him, there is nothing that can separate us from the God who holds him in being. There is nothing to fear. God, open our eyes. Open our eyes. There is nothing to fear. God, my prayer for these men and these women, for these brothers and sisters of mine right here this morning is that they will see. That they will see. And in seeing that the fear and the shame will dissipate. And they will see Ruth as they should see Ruth. They will see that widow as they should see that widow. They will see their enemies the way they should see their enemies. They will see themselves the way they should see themselves. God, help me to see myself, not with the name I've given myself, but with the name you give me. Let me see, God. Give us that courage. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.